Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. member and lead singer of Leonardo's Bride, Abby Dobson, has had a much lauded career as a performer and songwriter. Much loved both as part of a partnership like Baby at Lulu, or as a gold album-selling solo artist, she is a special soul with the voice of an angel. Hello. I know that you found the process of choosing your five really challenging. Am I alone in that? Uh, no, 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 not at all. But okay. I, I just wondered if, if it was something present in your other choices in your life or it was just the five of my life that I, I didn't mean to put you through the oh, agony no, of having to choose. you're quite right. Yes. Uh, all, a lot of choices are best made for me. <laughs> okay. Right. So on the subject of choices, I know you listen to Five of My Life. What has been your favourite story so far? Well, I love Five of My Life and I oh. discovered it after you wrote me a very darling note after seeing me in concert and I went, well, who is this man? And, um, and I found that you have this wonderful podcast and I'm a big fan of podcasts so I subscribed immediately. There's a couple that stand out, Chris Mitchell. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. I found fascinating. I don't know about him and uh, I really, really enjoyed listening to him and his angle on things. He's had a lovely voice as well. And the other one is Richard Glover, who I've just loved forever. He's been a great champion of mine, really for like 25 years or something. It was lovely to hear his, you know, heart and whimsy and depth. You know, I'm a a fan of his. So here we go. We're going to start off with the film that is traditional. We're going back to 1978 and you've chosen the musical that knocked the sound of music off its top pedestal as the highest grossing musical ever at the time. (laughs) How dare it. Um, Grease. So I have to say off the bat, Betty Rizzo or Sandy Olsen? What are are you? Are you a pink lady or are you you Olivia? I was Olivia. Come on. (laughs) But you must have been a fetus when this was released. I mean, surely. I was 10. 10. Okay. I was 10. I chose this because... It made such an impact on me at a young age. I I did watch the film recently to remind myself of it. It didn't quite have the same impact, but it had a very visceral impact on me as a 10-year-old. It was the first time I remember seeing a film and when the credits came up, I just screamed, no, this can't be over. I want to be in this film. I want to be in Rydell High. I don't want this to end. It was the best kind of experience of film I'd ever had. I suppose I always also chose it because it probably did have informed my, you know, later decisions, even though at the time I wasn't convinced that I was going to be a singer or anything like that. It took a long time for that to happen. But What were you like at school? I mean, were you musical? Were you performing? Were I you- was performing. I came from a family of, I'm the youngest of five 
and we all played guitar. There were guitars in the house and everybody played, so that was kind of a normal thing to do. So I, wa- I, went, I then went to a Catholic high school and I was invited to play at a lot of the masses and things like that. I was wheeled out for school functions and things like that because I did play and sing. And I, you know, we had a, quite an antiquated music department. See, I was kind of like slightly outsider, but I was wheeled in for various songs that I like to do. When did you decide, can you remember, when you decided to be a musician as a career? It came very slowly. I suppose it was obvious perhaps to a lot more people than me that I had a, a, a nice voice. I didn't really have the confidence and there was no modelling for that in my life. So it was never suggested to me as a thing that I could do as a career ever. So I definitely wouldn't have pushed myself forward for that if no one had said, you know, you should do this. So I was quite lost because I didn't know what I wanted to do for some time and I marvelled at everybody who seemed to know. I secretly enrolled in the Lismore School of Performing Arts, which was a new performing arts school at that time when I finished high school. And I got in and I told my mother and she refused to let me go. She told me I wasn't allowed to go and that I had to do a secretarial course if I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> and God love her. And did you follow the rules or did you tell her to get nicked? No, well, because I didn't have any money and so she wouldn't, I didn't. So I you didn't go to the musical no, school? No, I didn't go. Oh. I didn't go. <laughs> that, that reminds me of this wonderful book, Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. It was a great <laughs> book. I read that And you book. go sort of, you know, screw you and your stupid ambitions. Yeah. You're like secretarial college for you. So, right. so you, did you did you pass out? The, did you do the whole course? I didn't do the whole course. I got about two-thirds of the way through as a very miserable girl. <laughs> and one of the teachers came up to me after a while and said, there's a film producer I know who's looking for an assistant. I think you should go for that. And so I did and I got that job and then I worked in film production and then advertising for a little while and then I met a guy in advertising. We hit it off famously and uh, he was a closet songwriter and I was a closet singer and so we used to go to brackets and jam nights and we got together as a couple. He, his name was Dean Manning and that was the beginning of Uh, what then became Leonardo's Bride. Just a series of wonderful, fortuitous sliding doors. Is that not life? It it is for all of us, but maybe not sometimes to that stark extent. I mean, and and was there lingering resentment to your mum? Have you forgiven her or did you just not, you just got on with it? It took a while for her to come around. (laughs) Right. Because he and I then travelled overseas and started playing music as a way to feed ourselves for a year and a half in Europe. And when we came back, she uh, suggested that that was a lovely hobby and that I should then get on with my career. So I kind of had to disown her for a while because she wouldn't back me. She didn't like that for very long. And so she then had finally came to me and said, of course, I will back you. And I wanted to be a dancer and my father wouldn't let me be a dancer. She then became my absolute number one fan and has been ever since. She sends me a text message every gig I ever do. Oh, saying, sweetheart. the angels are with you. I've sent my choir of angels <laughs> to your side. She's pretty amazing. I love it. Now, can I just quickly go back to school? Because I saw something that you posted that I thought was just gorgeous, where you were on a run or something and you literally bumped in to the bloke who took you to your year, year 12 formal, who yeah. you hadn't seen since then. And then you posted a picture of you and him 
on the day yeah. that happened, but also you and him on the day. Yes, he, we went. He, we took each other to our school. To oh, okay, each right. of our school formals. We were very close. He wasn't actually my boyfriend, although he wanted to be. <laughs> a while after that, he, I remember him taking me to a Fergal Sharky concert. Oh, so, Fergal! So yeah. that Fergal could sing to me, "You little thief, you little nightmare," <laughs> to my face. Um, but yes, he he. I did see him. It wasn't the first time I'd seen oh, him okay. since then because I sang at his wedding. Um, oh wow! A number of years later, after school. But yeah, it was great to see him. And then I came home and we took this selfie. And then I thought, I've got to find these photographs of us in our formal gear. So I posted the whole story. It was a, quite a popular post. I love it. So talking about history, we're going to go back in time to 1950 for your book choice. Yep. Uh, I'm really grateful to you for choosing this because I hadn't read any of Salinger's short stories before. Mm. Um, more shame me. Uh, I'd read, obviously, Catcher in the Rye, but I hadn't read for Esme with Love and Squalor. I'm looking at your copy now. Thank you for the loan. Just fantastic. I'm so glad you loved oh, it. What a writer. So why did you choose uh, those nine stories? I first read Salinger, I think, when I was probably a young, you know, young 20-something-year-old, and I, it was Catcher in the Rye, and I absolutely fell in love with his writing style so much, his language and the way that he puts words together and the deep heart that he has. You know, it's so wrenching, and yet, you know, he tricks you because the language is so kind of initially fluffy and particularly in these short stories. Um, these stories are just so, oh, they just, you, you think that you're reading something, you know, the language is so kind of delicious and cute and, and fluffy and chocolatey and kind of, you think you're sitting down to kind of with a cup of tea to break off a delicious piece of like lamington or something. And then as you read more, you realise that it's actually your heart that's breaking, not the cake. You know, it's yeah. really quite artful. The nuances of his stories too and the way he draws characters and, and children and, the, you know, the way he might paint a character will be as much about describing what they don't do as much as what they do do. In one of the stories, I think in... Banana fish. Oh, so that was my favourite. Perfect day for yeah. banana fish. And, and it describes her, uh, she was a girl who for a ringing telephone dropped absolutely nothing. She was painting her nails. Yes. And, and you, could, you could see her sort of holding them out to totally. dry. And, and the conversation with her mother, you're just getting one sort of side of the conversation, but you could picture what her mother was like. Absolutely. And I made my elder son read that story when I'd finished it. Did you? Because the last paragraph, I mean, it's exactly as you say, you think this is an amazing story, it's interesting, but you don't know, I'm going to ruin it now for readers, but you don't know the bloke's going to shoot himself. It just comes out of, uh, you go, wow. Yeah. I mean, I had to put the book down and think about it for a second. You go, I didn't know that was coming. No. Yeah. Well, they're, they're all kind of, I mean, it's a bit like, Ian McEwan or mm. a writer like that where they kind of draw you in with emerald satin and, and cocktails and, and then they just pull the rug from under you and you're, you know, you're taken into a much darker, deeper kind of water. And now, I've read you describe yourself as a sensitive soul. And can you tell me more about that? How does that manifest itself? What is a sensitive soul? I just, I feel things. I, I, you know, I navigate the world through my feelings. And so. Do you bruise easily? I bruise easily. I bruise by the wind, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I've, I've also got a very sensitive body. Do you know, it's not just my emotions. It's my body is very sensitive as well. But, and touring's quite grueling, I can imagine. It is grueling. And that was really why I ended up having to leave Leonardo's Bride because I just, I just was exhausted. I just couldn't keep doing it as much as I mean the whole way through our success I was unwell so mm. it was it was uh, it was challenging yeah we're going to move on to your third choice on five of my life and we're staying in America but we're moving up to the 1990s and you've chosen again I'm incredibly grateful because it you've got me into something that before I didn't know uh, lover you should have come over is the seventh track from Jeff Buckley's only album uh, released in 1994 <laughs> Again, it was difficult to choose a song. But I thought, again, it had such an impact on me. When I first heard his voice, I remember I was at um, my mother's house. I walked into her apartment and she had one of those tape deck radio things and the radio was on. Or maybe I put it on. I can't imagine she would have had Triple J on. But I heard this voice singing and I quickly went to the tape deck to record it because it was the most beautiful voice I'd ever heard in my life. And I was like, I have to, no, I have to capture this. They back announced it as Jeff Buckley. So the next day I went up to the record store and I bought the album, you know, and then I saw how handsome he was. Jesus. And so I listened to that album over and over again and I was so uh, just turned on in all kinds of ways by his vocal, I mean, his range is extraordinary but the passion and the spirit that he kind of imbued, his whole body and spirit comes out in this music. And I was trying to find a way to do that myself, you know, to bring all the parts of me to what I was doing and not just be this tuneful voice, but actually to um, to bring my spirit to to it. And so... I was seeing this guy at the time. He was in a band as well, and we'd had kind of had this long, ongoing affair. And he was invited. He and his band were invited to support Jeff Buckley at the Metro, and I was thrilled, of course. And I just assumed that I, he would let me, you know, put my name on the door because, you know, he was my lover. <laughs> and but he also knew how much I loved Jeff Buckley. And when the time came. He refused to put my name on the door. The show was sold out and I couldn't get in. <laughs> I hope that was the end of the relationship. It should have been. <laughs> it really should have been because he was just like, I don't want to be backstage and watch you two fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I tell you, when you're talking about Jeff Buckley, about how he brings his whole self to his performance, when he, even just from a little clip from 20 years ago, you, you can see that. Mm. But the writing in the song that you chose, there are two lines. One is, my kingdom for a kiss upon her shoulder. My kingdom for a kiss upon her shoulder. You go, that's, that's just an incredible sentence. It just sums up a whole host of wonderful stuff. It sounds a little bit like my Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, my kingdom for a man who can cook and make me laugh. Oh, there you go. Well, then I'm going to come on to this. Then, I didn't know that. I didn't know that I, <laughs> I had stolen it from you. <laughs> well, he's got another line, which is, she is the tear that hangs inside my soul forever. So you go, you've got writing like that, 
you've got a performer who can sing four octaves or whatever it is and play the guitar like an angel and all those things. Mm. But he's actually writing about Rebecca Moore. That song is about him breaking up with his lover. He is regretful. He's, he's, he's you know, and he's pouring that out into mm. his performance. It's not some bullshit, you know, pop group. He's actually, you know, wailing. You know, I've let her go because I was an idiot, blah, blah, blah. So it, it leads me to want to ask you about how your relationships inform your art and your performances. But is it a, a theme throughout your art and work or, or it's not a major? Oh, it's a big theme, actually. I think my relationships have informed a lot of my writing. I'm not somebody like Paul Kelly, as much as I wish I was, that can conjure a story about somebody else, a, you know, a train driver or a woman feeling peace. I, I really just write from my own experience. That's all I've been able to uh, – I, I suppose I, I write what I know. And then I try and just really dig into the detail of what of what I know. Yeah, that my relationships have <laughs> really informed a lot of my and, and songs. So is it is it easier for you to create when you're in one, out of one, freshly breaking up from one, creating one, or it doesn't matter, just any any version. Unfortunately, <laughs> broken-hearted love songs are the easiest ones, probably, for me to write when you're at the beginning. I'm not. Down, I'm tiptoeing through the tulips. I'm not <laughs> sitting down with pen in hand, so it's harder to capture that kind of the budding, perhaps. So stage. we need to keep you miserable, so you can keep doing your no, wonderful stuff. No, no, I just need uh, to take up another career, perhaps, <laughs> because I can't possibly go through any of that again. <laughs> Surely, how many times can a heart be broken? <laughs> Jeff Buckley, obviously the the son of Tim Buckley. Oh. Um, wow, what a what a family! But he only met his dad. Once, mm. when he was eight, once. I didn't Holy, know it was once. Amazing. So it, it, it made me want to ask you about your dad and your relationship with him. Well, I met him more than once, but only just. He sired five children with my mother, um, but as it turns out, he didn't actually want children and uh, he just really wanted to go out with my mother and she was Catholic and wasn't allowed to use contraceptives. So they were really weren't very suited, I don't think, from what I can work out now. He he was a Cancerian like me, moody and emotional and and uh, she's a Leo and gregarious and uh, I don't think they had a great, great time. They got pregnant as soon as they had sex, you know, and so that's how that story started. But he left my mother when I was five and we saw him for weekend visits over the next couple of years. Then he started seeing somebody much younger than him, a woman 25 years younger than him, and she didn't like us. So oh. I'm not sure why and I, I didn't understand then and I I can't unpick it now, but she probably didn't want to have five children either. <laughs> so he came to us one day and said, you know, after a weekend outing and said, I'm sorry, I won't be able to see you anymore. And I don't know if I quite understood that then either. I remember my sister was wailing for a long time. So that was that. We didn't so he, really he see him again. he chose her over his children? He did. 
Okay. Uh, and, and, and I'm hoping you're going to tell me, and they then stayed together for 100 years and were very, very happy. They, they didn't stay together for 100 years, but they did stay together till he died about 12 years ago. I did see him again when I was about 16. Mm-hmm. My sister had a child and she I wanted to, she tried very hard to stay in touch with him over the years because they were very, very close. I was fortunately uh, very close to my mother, so I was less traumatized perhaps than some of the older ones. He was a dentist and he lived in Sydney. I did see him when I was 16. That was weird. He had two different colored eyes, which I couldn't take my eyes off. David Bowie. Yeah. What happened then? Then I saw him again when I was about 21 or two and I was playing music and my sister again instigated him to come to our house. His wife was very neurotic and even all those years later, she practically had a nervous breakdown, him coming to see us just that one afternoon. So uh, that was the next time I saw him. And then when I was about 26 or something, I, I decided that I was going to interview him. And I hired a video camera and I wrote to him and asked him if I could interview him. And he said yes, reluctantly. And I went to his house and he, I set up a, you know, a tripod and set up the camera and we had a a day together. His wife did all the talking until we were doing this interview. And then I asked him a lot of questions that I wanted answered from him and not through hearsay. And I'm glad that I was able to do that. I wasn't, I didn't go hard on him. I had some light questions as well, like what's your favorite sound? And I asked about his family history and I wanted to to know him. I suppose I wanted to find out that he was a great man, but I just hadn't known him but that actually underneath all of the story that he was a great man, that was what I was searching for. And I didn't find that. And that was that was a bit heartbreaking. It took a, a friend years later to help me unpick that. And I felt quite blocked by the fact, I was like, how, how could I possibly be great unless if I have a father that isn't? I think I had some kind of wiring that made me feel held back somehow by that. And he, he, my friend pulled the teeth out of that monster for me and told me that many great people were born of bad parents. So, so yeah, so that it wasn't a great story. My father died about 12 years ago and fortunately his wife let me know that he was dying because we weren't sure that we would ever even be told. So I was living in Melbourne at the time. My eldest brothers fortunately were able to go immediately to his bedside and they were the last to see him. He died a few hours after they uh, sat with him and told him that they loved him and that they forgave him. And, and then his wife died a few years ago. What an amazing story. Okay, for your fourth choice, uh, we're leaving Jeff and America and we're moving to France because for your place on Five My Life, you've chosen Paris. Why? Well, why why wouldn't you? How could you not choose Paris? Paris has been a place, I actually haven't been there now for almost 10 years, which is the longest time that I haven't visited Paris. I've, I've visited there a handful of times. When I was younger, I had this fabulous aunt, Margie Bond, and she flew on the Concorde. She smoked cigarettes. She had an orange BMW 2002 with an electric sunroof. 
and she had learned to speak French cassettes in her car and we would drive around and she could speak French and she worked in Geneva. And I just thought this language (laughs) is a portal to all things, things delicious. (laughs) And there was a French patisserie up the road from where we lived and on a Sunday afternoon my mother would sometimes secretly whisk me there and I could choose a an eclair and the people who worked there spoke French and I could say bonjour and I loved every bit of it. And so I learned French at school, again, not knowing quite what I wanted to do. I did French, Italian and art. They were my majors at school. And so I just wanted to leave school, go to France, go to the Louvre and uh, smoke cigarettes. (laughs) So I did, in fact, and when Dean and I got together when I was about 20, after six months of going out with each other, he, for Christmas, bought us both a one-way trip around the world. And so we went to a few places first, Singapore, Moscow, Athens, Paris, and we had a guitar with us that we took with us on the romantic idea that one day we might have to sing for our supper. We ended up having to do that a lot. I had some friends, in some French friends that I'd met when I was working in advertising, and they helped us get an apartment. And it was summer, it was the top floor, rooftops, and we got a gig several nights a week playing at a place called Les Voutes de Lutesse. And so we would walk past the Centre Pompidou and the Notre Dame across Ile de la Cité to uh, this bar, this tequila slammer bar called Les Voutes de Lutesse, which is near the Shakespeare bookshop. And uh, we would have to teach the barman to slam the tequilas on the beat. <laughs> and... It was a beautiful time. We spent three months there working and we had roses on our living room table every day because people would, you know, the flower seller would come through the bar and people would buy roses for me. So that was a pretty great experience and we thought we were kings. We were poor but we had brie and baguette and lentil stews and supermarket red wine and felt like absolute kings. What a great time. It was a great time. And also there were no mobile phones, there was no internet. Every now and again there would be a post-restaurant package and we'd been travelling for six months by that stage. I got to speak this language that I loved. I got to experiment with parts of myself that I hadn't that hadn't come out yet. Do you know? And I, I, I feel sorry for young people now who go travel overseas but they're still connected to people who remind them who they are all the time. And I'd had so so much of not being reminded, so enough time to have not been reminded who I was that I could then start to form ideas of who I wanted to be and play with identity and ideas and in a, in a foreign language you don't get so distracted by conversations on the, tu- on the metro and you can kind of have an, a more of a closer relationship with your inner world. So it became a very rich and also it was delicious, you know, delicious the way that the lights on the Seine are art directed is delicious every every degree you turn is beauty I get very excited by beauty and so that city for me is you know so so it's wonderful hearing you describe this and and clearly this has come through to one of your current endeavors the baby at Lulu would you would you tell us about that your your wonderful French duo, is that, is that what we call it? Well, it is a duo, but we're also a six-piece band. Ah, but okay. I, Apologies to the band. Yes, well, my current project that I've been in actually for 10 or 11 years now is called Baby et Lulu, 
that was formed as an absolute folly. I had been, I was in Paris at the time, I think it was 2000, and Lulu, Lara Goodridge, uh, happened to be there at the same time. We were both there with our, our boyfriends and, and we had worked together. She had a, had a record label called Craving Records and she'd released one of my solo albums and through that relationship we had become good friends and we both realised that we both had the same sense of the ridiculous and the absurd. Um, but we didn't know that we both spoke French until we happened to be in Paris at the same time. She, I think she suggested, why don't we do a song one day? I'd never played with her. She's an extraordinary violinist and, and I didn't even know she was really a singer. And we said, wouldn't it be wonderful to do a song together in French? And a few months later, we were back in Australia. She was having a, a warehouse party and we decided to do a song at this party, uh, one of the songs from the book, Les Baisers. And we stood up on milk crates, we, we found an accordionist, and we did this one song in French, in harmony. And we were so smitten. You know, my heart exploded. And I was like, you know, I mean, it was only 10 years ago, I was 40. And I thought I was like, oh, I want to do this when I grow up. Can I do this when I grow up? This is amazing. So we did that one song and I, we can, neither of us can even remember what anybody else thought of it, but we were just in, on cloud nine. And so then we decided let's do one show. Let's get this French folly out of our system. Let's do one show, get a band together, get a repertoire together and have fun. And I was living in Melbourne at the time and she was living in Sydney. And so we put this band together, a, a repertoire that took us months and months. I remember walking around Melbourne with my iPod on for months learning this material. And so we did this show. It sold out within minutes. People, we didn't realise there were so many Francophiles in Australia. And people just loved it. We loved it. The band were extraordinary. And after a while of doing these shows every few months or so for fun, everyone wanted an album. So we decided to, we self-funded an album People loved it. It's been such a joy. And we now write songs in French. So it's a, it's a, it, it, it was a, for a long time my side project, but in lots of ways it's become the mainframe of my musical life these days. Now, so that actually is quite an interesting link to the fifth and final choice, your possession. The choice that you uh, have brought today is your headphones, your noise-cancelling Sony headphones. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I need to understand what precisely they are and how they work, but also why they're so important for you. What do you mean, what they are and how they work? You don't know what yeah, a noise-cancelling no, headphone is? So if you've got them on yes. and, and I go, Oi, Abby, can you hear me? Or are they like earplugs or, or do they like drown out high frequency, low frequency? But you can turn them on You can, and there are settings. So you can have an ambient setting so that if you're walking down the street and you want to hear that the bus is pulling up behind you, you can have it on that setting or you can have it on com almost completely noise-cancelling headphones. So I can be, which I love because I listen to podcasts all the time, like your very good podcast 5ML. If I'm walking down the street, I can, the bus won't interrupt the dialogue. I never miss a word. Right. So it's opened up this world for me because I suppose also being a musician, like the, you know, the cobbler always has the worst shoes. The musician always has the worst stereo gear. So I've never had a good stereo in my life, you know, and, and since I was a child, they, they, I think we had a good one then. But as, as a grown-up, I've never had good, a good way to listen to music, even the music that I've made. I've never been able to listen to it on good equipment. And so I bought these headphones 
um, a few years ago on a trip to Thailand and I meant to buy Bose ones. That was what I'd set out to buy, but they didn't have them at the duty-free store, so I bought these Sony ones. I'm sure they're all just as good. I've been able to listen to all kinds of things in beautiful sound quality. I walk around my – I mean, I live on my own, but I still listen to music mostly on these headphones because I can wander around and, and it stays stays with me. And But, yeah, I can – I listen to podcasts and I listen to meditations. I listen to rife frequencies. I listen to music. And then I also can have this absolute silence in case the man with the leaf blowers outside and I'm – I don't want to hear that. So it's just opened up this world. But I think the main part of it is being able to curate your mood. Also just the information. You know, I don't watch the news. I haven't, I haven't really watched television since I left school. But I love learning certain things. But I, I, I want to choose what I'm, what I'm hearing about. So I love the freedom that, that these headphones give me into all kinds of interesting worlds, great conversations and interesting people and some beautiful people out there that I would normally have never come across. And so I get to decide what I feel like my spirit needs and and choose it. So it's, it's something that I think we are going to have to learn to do more, where it's very, I think, enlightened of you to curate your consumption of entertainment and news. Mm. And what many people do, which is entirely understandable, is they, they hand it over to whoever it might be, you know, Channel 9 or the ABC or whatever else, and they might just not be the best people to choose what goes inside yeah. your head. And, and I, I, I had a trip recently to Canberra, and I thought rather than listening to the radio or whatever, I will choose five podcasts that I've meant to listen to over the last six months but never got round mm. to and only listen to. It was great. But hold on, I could do that every day. You can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have said, another thing you're going to say I don't remember saying, uh, is that you never make long-term plans. Is that true? It's probably quite true, yes. Okay. What, what do you hope for next? Uh, just to carry on and be, you know, your face lights up when you talk about performing and you talk about, you know, your Paris experience and baby and Lulu. Is it just more of the same or do you think, oh gosh, I'm one of these days I'm going to go and live in Moscow or I want to take up basket weaving or whatever. <laughs> so I'm good at the smaller detail of things. I wake up in the morning and think, how can I make today really great? And that's about as far as I go. That's not a bad philosophy. It's I mean, okay. hey, well, it seems to be working for you. <laughs> it's been so lovely to talk to you. Just fantastic. Oh, you're lovely, Nigel. Thank you for inviting me on. Well, listen, but I have to get to the sixth question, which oh. is no longer a surprise because I ask everybody. Each but- <laughs> question, even though you've told me these questions, each time you say, I don't know what the next question's going to be, it's a mystery. Pay to attention, <laughs> woman. It is. Uh, who would you like to hear on your noise cancelling headphones on Five of My Life next? Well, Probably because you used to work in advertising. When I was 18, I met and worked with a guy called David Droger. Do you know him? I know of him, but I've never actually worked with David myself. And he and I have been friends ever since. We've stayed in touch, but of course he lives overseas. But I thought, I would like to hear him. I know he's an art lover and I don't know if you can get him. He's Australian, but he comes out here regularly. Uh, Abby Dobson, what, what a delight. I, I hope Five of My Life in some way can can help in your glorious life's journey. You're and beautiful. thank you so thank much you. It's for been coming a on pleasure. Five of My Life. An absolute pleasure. Thank you, Nigel. 
Thank you for listening to The Five of My Life, presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Our producer is Mandy Coolan. Theme music is thanks to Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholas. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share with a friend. And if there's someone you'd like to hear take the challenge, please message us on the Five of My Life Instagram page. I love hearing from you and appreciate all your suggestions. What's the nicest thing a fan has ever done for you? Presently, there's a fan who puts me in a syndicate every week for Powerball. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's the type of fan you want. (laughs) I think that is just so sweet.